I'm your host, Nancy Trader. Welcome to the Stop Digging Podcast, where we'll help you dig out of whatever hole you're in. Here, you can connect with experts to listen and learn from their experience and get advice for your challenges in business, wellness organizations, and relationships. Here, you can borrow from others and find what you need to create the life and work you want. Hello, everyone. Thank you for checking in with us here on the Stop Digging Podcast. Today, our guest is a very thoughtful, enterprising person who literally runs around looking for ways to help people and solve problems. He's an entrepreneur, a student mentor, environmentalist, foreign policy advisor, and a mental health advocate. But before we get started, the reason we're talking to him today is because he is a good citizen. And in today's world, we love to talk to people who want to help others. And so Susan, can you get us kind of started on this topic for today? Nancy, I would love to. So A-squared LAMP groups, one of our mottos, our main motto, the motto is empowering people, amplifying success, and building community. How do you build community? Well, communities are groups of people who identify with each other and engage with each other. And communities are formed and built through teams. Teams are small groups of people who take action in support of a larger community. And I know that we can go into a lot of fluffy terms for good citizenship. I know that there are a lot of people who, when they hear the term, would think that it only has to do with political things like obeying the law or voting, but it's bigger than that. And I wanted to point out at least one set of research that kind of defines it. And I'll go ahead and read that. It's just published in 2021 in a book. It's based on research from the IEA Research for Education, Volume 12. And I will put that in our LinkedIn group so that you can look it up for yourself. And it says, good citizenship is a multidimensional concept, which includes a series of values, actions, and norms. In this regard, the idea of a good citizen refers to the sense of belonging of a group of people and how they believe they should behave within their community. Since the idea of a good citizenship is linked to a particular community, generally a nation or state, Its definitions vary in relationship to the place or the place of belonging. This implies that the idea of good citizenship depends on the historical and geographic context. And the crux of that research is that good citizens are made in the political realm, the economic realm, and the cultural realm. In this global study, it found similarities across all nations, communities, and people, with the primary difference being national income, and social media access, which speaks directly to engagement and the ability to engage with others. And the reason we have this amazing guest with us is because this person is building teams, building communities, and creating access for people. So Nancy, who do we have today? Today we have our friend, Greg Nance. And I met Greg probably about a year and a half ago when he was getting ready to make this amazing run across America. And I don't know if some of our listeners don't know, but I'm a journalist and in a small town on Bainbridge Island in uh, near Seattle. And when I first met Greg, I thought, how can someone run 3,000 miles (laughs) and still have a smiling face? And so welcome, Greg. 
really wonderful to be able to have you here with us today. Nancy, thank you so much. Susan, so appreciate it. Thank you. Great. So kind of at the top of all this, we were talking about, you know, being a good citizen and every hero, heroine and villain has an origin story. (laughs) So can you kind of tell us a little bit about how you got started and got on this path? Yeah. Well, number one, uh, thank you for the invitation. I am delighted to be with y'all here today, uh, riffing on Um, challenges we face and opportunities and how we're going to come together. I want to start off by saying that I am one of the luckiest people that you have ever met. I have a great family, was born in a wonderful community, Bainbridge Island here, Kitsap Peninsula. And I had a really happy childhood playing sports, have great teachers, great mentors, great coaches with a big sister and a little brother that I love and would play with. My origin story, really, I think it's kind of age 15, 16, my uh, hero, my best adult friend, Grandpa Charlie, was my breakfast buddy. And we would start every day together. He was kind of a larger-than-life figure for me. He uh, had been a, a child in the Great Depression, had to go chip rock out of a rock quarry when he was 16, and then um, joined the Marine Corps at age 17 before World War II broke out. And during the war, has to fight across the South Pacific, including at Iwo Jima, which is some of the most hellish fighting anywhere, uh, anytime, place. He was my hero, and we had a wonderful relationship, a great friendship. One morning as I go to wake him for breakfast, something is totally wrong, and Grandpa Charlie has suffered a massive stroke. And over the next year, year and a half, he is slowly wasting away, um, first at our home and then at a nursing home when we can no longer fully take care of him. And that was such a painful experience not to be able to help my grandpa Charlie the way that he'd always been there for me. I felt powerless. I felt so depressed and overwhelmed. I began dealing with my depression, with the anxiety I felt about all this by self-medicating with alcohol, with malt liquor and vodka, and then with painkillers, opiate painkillers. And over the next seven years, I really struggle with that. The only way that I'm able to to begin working my way through this is I have wonderful mentors in my life encouraging me. I have a couple volunteer projects I'm plugged in on that are meaningful, that are fun, that remind me that I can be happy and I can do some good around here. And then a daily running ritual where every day just lace up and go for a jog. That little triangle is what helped me to actually find my way. And at age 23, I'm able to finally quit drinking alcohol and abusing alcohol the way I had been and devote myself to a better version of me. And so my origin story, I'm from the coolest place, the best family, great schools. I lost my way after my grandpa Charlie passed and slowly finding my way back to the path. And then now trying to help young people find their path is they navigate a challenging world. May I may I ask a question here? Did you know the whole time that you were abusing alcohol and opiates or did you not realize that until later? Initially, Susan, it was uh, a little bit of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde deal where I, uh, I was a pretty good student. So I was getting pretty good grades. I'm on the sports teams. I'm the captain of the debate team. And I still am continuing to be successful in these domains. And really, really struggling privately. And so mm-hmm. I knew I had a problem, but at the same time, people are telling me, oh, you're, you're a great debater and you're doing such a good job at this or that. And so it, it, was, it was super, uh, it was more and more difficult to kind of look at myself in the mirror where it's like, I felt these two paths diverging. And I knew that, look, there's a better version of me out there. 
and it's not drinking, it's not taking drugs, but it mm-hmm. took me over a hundred tries to finally quit drinking. Uh, I tried for seven years knowing, hey, I'm doing too much of this. I, this is terrible for me. I'm poisoning myself. And yet I felt powerless to actually stop. I would vow Saturday morning, I'm never doing that again. And then by Saturday night, I've had you know another 10 or 12 drinks down the hatch. And so I knew I was off but it was so hard to try to even find the path again. So Greg, you mentioned like you had all these wonderful people around you and you know, you said you were really lucky. What was it that got you to finally flip the switch when you felt like you could move forward? Where were you when that was happening? Yeah. So I was a, um, I was a student in England. So I, I had the amazing opportunity. I went to Cambridge university in the UK paid for by Bill Gates and, and Bill Melinda Gates foundation dream school. And it's free. This is like too good to be true. I, in that season of my life, I felt the weight of great expectations. You know, Bill Gates is paying me to do this. I need to do something great here. Mm-hmm. I am lonely. I've just broken up with a, with a gal that meant a great deal to me. I am without any of my friends or, you know, uh, social, social circle. I'm in a new place, a new country. Uh, and I'm super homesick with all of that. And so I go to my old crutch alcohol and I start spending money like a drunk sailor. And in, in short order, I have actually spent more than my stipend on alcohol and on drugs. And so it was really a new rock bottom moment getting pulled into the provost's office. Uh, and he's not there to celebrate some accomplishment or some triumph of mine, as I foolishly thought walking there. He is there to admonish me. He calls me a disgrace. And he tells me, if I could, I would expel and deport you. I've never heard anything like that from some authority figure. And yet here is my life circling down a drain because of this problem I have. And so I wish I had a redemptive story of, you know, I I just realized one day I needed to do better, but it was really getting whacked over the head by this provost, uh, Provost Robert Lethridge, who I thank to my dying breath, I will thank for helping me find my path. Sometimes actually a little bit of tough love. He cared about me. That's why he said what he said. He knew that I had potential that I was wasting away with this, and he knew he had to break through. And so often in my work as a youth mentor, I deal with young people going through tough stuff. And every time we've got to find out what does this young person need in this moment. And I'm lucky Robert Lethridge finally figured out how to get through my thick skull to try to be there for me. And we close it out with a hug, and I'm able to find my path. I wonder how much of that had to do with the removal of all that you new. And and the reason I ask that is because Ace Squared, we do, uh, I've done extensive traveling and we built travel into our, into our programs. And the reason why is because I feel like there's some growth that you can only do when you're removed from what you know, the people, you know, your social economic status, your routines, um, the, the people who say that you're fine. And then you get traveling with a team and you get squeezed a little bit and you're like, oh, I'm not as great as they said I was <laughs> or how I thought, you know? So, uh, I mean, it must have been a little bit galling to have uh, a nation that's known for its drinking call you out <laughs> <laughs> on your drinking uh, and, and kind of hold you to account for that. Hey, th- there's something powerful there where, yeah, sometimes we, we do have to kind of break ourselves down to, to rebuild. It's so painful and so difficult. A change of scenery 
can sometimes be the spark that makes that possible. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. Like when you were talking about, you know, being away and from everything that you know, I remember mm-hmm. when I was, I was in the army and I was stationed in Korea. And wow. for the first, like, there was a couple of months there where I just cried every day because <laughs> it was so lonely and different. And when I had to go every day, out, you know, that was when I came home from work, but I had to go out the next day and do my work and, you know, be that, put on that face of confidence, you know, and like you, we, we get through it. Right. So when you kind of came out of this, you said you didn't have a redemptive story. I, I think you do because you've moved on and you did some really, you started doing some really good work, but you, you didn't mention the foundation that you started when you were in Chicago. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah. One of, uh, one of the things that helped me to find my way again was getting involved and trying to find other people who are passionate, who want to pay it forward. I, I realized only when I went off to school in Chicago, then Senator Barack Obama is running for president. There's so much energy in the city of Chicago across America. I wanted to do something. And so I, me and some friends, four buddies, we start Money Think uh, to help students actually get into college and then pay for it without going um, into debt and being crippled by debt. And that was our mission. We were swept up by this Obama energy. And just four short years later, our team gets invited to the White House to be recognized by President Obama for the work we're up to. And so that was life changing for me because I realized, look, when I put this nervous energy that I feel naturally, I can actually devote myself to do some good with that energy I have, as opposed to trying to drink it and drown that energy and that force that I have. And so that volunteer project that I've been working on for almost 15 years now, man, it has been so life affirming and it's changed my life in so many respects. The people I've been able to connect with and work with, young people that I tried to inspire that actually inspired me and just the ripples of change that every one of us can create when we roll up our sleeves, when we get involved, when we work hard, it's remarkable. And our team at MoneyThink is testament that anyone with an idea and with some energy can start changing the world. Well, I love the idea of financial education practical stuff. I mean, a, a lot of people don't understand the relevance of that. It's It sounds like textbook kind of stuff until you get out into the real world and you have to actually apply it. When you become a college student, the first thing they want to do is give you credit cards and loans. Yep. And <laughs> it's just like, I, you Ooh. know, if, if you have to support yourself, I know Nancy and I both did. Yeah, that's no bueno. Yeah, we can't we can't do it because five years from now, yeah, we don't have somebody to like pay this thing off, right? It's it's down to us. What I like about your story and your involvement is that it's almost like that airline instruction that we have all become blind and deaf to is that you put the air over your own mouth first before you can help mm-hmm. somebody else. And so even though your motivation may be to help other people, getting your yourself lined up to be who you are and healthy, whatever version that is, empowers you to use all of that energy forward to the other thing that you wanted to do. Yeah. And I also uh, appreciate, I, I know that you, you kept going and you, you didn't just stop with money think. <laughs> you went, you went and tell us how you got to China and then you started uh, Dyad. I'd like to hear more about that. Oh, and I'm excited about this because I, I love China and all everything Chinese. So you got to take your time on this one. <laughs> yeah. I, so when I was a bachelor in Chicago, I, uh, I initially had wanted to be a, um, I wanted to be an astronaut was my goal when I was growing up. I wanted to fly 
uh, I got into West Point when I was a senior in high school, but I found out I was colorblind, so I wasn't going to be able to fly and be a fighter pilot to become an astronaut. So let me go a different path. Um, I realized when I got to school that I wasn't cut out for astrophysics, which is what I initially planned to study. So I shift into international relations. And I do that because I have, an inc- I have a great professor who wants each of us to envision you are the president of the United States, and I'm going to brief you on important national security issues like the rise of nuclear weapons and uh, how we can you know, be more safe in the nuclear age and the rise of terrorism and how we can be safer in the age of uh, terrorism and the rise of China and how we can deal with this. And I just was so captivated that um, there are all these enormous challenges out there. And yet American leadership is so important to navigating so many of these issues and end up studying that. And the paper I write as a senior, my bachelor's thesis, 50 page paper about China's naval developments and basically how the U.S. should respond. How can we create peace and prosperity? And really, like, how do we avoid war is part of that. And then also, how do we create the, a structure where our democratic maritime allies can step up to the plate and help us to ensure peace and prosperity? And so I wrote this big paper. And at the end of that 50-page paper, I realized, look, I have a lot of book smarts about China. I have zero street smarts about China. I've spent a total of three weeks there. Don't really know the first thing about it. And so I, I was looking for an excuse to actually go spend some time in China. And I got the excuse when I was in England. I uh, wrote a um, uh, wrote a little business plan for, hey, I want to help students apply for university, earn scholarships so that uh, we can create a more meritocratic education system around the world. That was uh, an idea we had. And we pilot this idea. And in short order, we have hundreds and hundreds of signups and then client purchases on our little website, many of which are from China, which is um, you know, the largest education market in the world. Surprise, surprise. Wow, um, all these people are buying this. And I realized, look, uh, this is a really special moment in time. This is 2012, when the US and China are trying to figure out how to work together. Um, there was gonna be a big presidential election in, uh, in China uh, where the party would pick a new president. And what a cool time to actually go and try to be part of a solution for better China-America relations. I moved to Shanghai in September of 2012, and that ended up being kind of the high watermark of U.S.-China relations. For those of us that have followed the foreign policy in the decade since, we tried to do a lot of good over there. We created a really cool model that helps students from middle class and working class family backgrounds in China and actually all over the world to get into American universities and to actually help pay for it with scholarships and with uh, grants so they could actually make their dream of education happen, all with the big idea that we're going to have a more peaceful world when there's mutual understanding, when there's mutual respect. And student exchange was our idea for how we could help make that happen by influencing young people to be more open-minded and realize, hey, America's a really cool place. I, I, as a Chinese kid or an Indian kid, come over here and wow, Americans are awesome. America's awesome. When I'm a, a leader in my country in the future, we want to have a great relationship. So that was the big idea. And over the seven years I lived in China, we helped students earn over $27 million in university scholarships. We created a model that is now really pretty standard across China about mentorship and about getting help from people who've walked the path before you. That was super novel. That was super innovative. No one had done that before us. And we had a great team that made it happen over those seven years. Uh, the, the the bummer of an ending of the story is that uh, with Trump coming into office, there's a lot of saber rattling both both ways. And with the trade war, China decided, hey, we don't want any more American education companies 
uh, over here. And in fact, we're going to kick out all the international education providers. And so um, companies like Dyad, um, our social enterprise, effectively get uh, unceremoniously booted. And so uh, we are no longer able to make the impact that we initially had, had hoped to make. But uh, we had a great seven-year run, so many great experiences, wonderful successes, and every student that we helped was able to go make their dream happen. And so that that is gratifying for for myself and our team. So let, let me ask you this. I, I, I don't know if you gather these statistics, so I don't mean to put you on the spot, but out of all of the people that came over here and studied, do you track them when they go back and what they're doing? And can you share any of those stories? Because I'd like to hear those as well. Yeah, so we, we did. So we had a big emphasis on the Dyad Global Network. And so the idea is you're not just some client that pays us and disappears. No, no, like we want to actually build a, a community, a collective of folks that want to help make the world a better place. And so, yeah, where to even begin? So I loved it when a student would have a great reason for studying in America. For instance, we, um, America, we're the largest polluter on the planet by a lot of definitions. And in others, we're only the second or third biggest polluter, depending on what metric you're looking at. But we have a ton of environmental innovation in America. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge optimist. I believe we're going to figure out how to innovate new solutions around climate tech, new solutions to uh, reverse the effects of the climate crisis. Where there's a will, there's a way. And American innovation has solved a lot of massive problems and challenges. I think we're going to continue to do so. We help a lot of students over the years who wanted to study about how can we make China uh, a more innovative place as it relates to environmental protection. You've heard of cancer villages. There are p- entire villages in China with like 60, 70% cancer rates where like everyone is poisoned by this factory or by this chemical leakage or this pollution. There are children that are affected by that that want to go do something about it. And those were some of my favorite students that we'd mentor because I knew, look, if we help them get into this program, they can change the future of this village, the future of this province, the future of their country. Uh, and it takes us helping them get this first step going. And so stories of that ilk make me so happy. We have a number of students we worked with that are now in the Chinese foreign service that are doing really great work that are super pro-American. And so when they get Xi Jinping or other higher ups that say, you know, oh, down with America, they're thinking, eh, no, like America is actually a really great place we can learn from. I have friends over there. You know, you can't, uh, pretend like it's some evil place. It's not. These are good people. That, I believe, is so important to long-term shared prosperity. We got to figure out how to get along. And the work that we did for seven years, um, we built a lot of bridges, thousands and thousands of bridges. And I'd like to think that there's a snowball effect in time with these warm friendships and relationships do grow and emerge. And we've planted a lot of seeds. I think in time will bear really, really beautiful fruit. Well, of course, you know, I'm always curious within China's borders when they get back, how much freedom they have to actually do the thing that they want to do, especially recently, as you know. But you know, as well as I do in doing international relations, foreign policy work, that there's a huge difference between the national political climate and the people themselves, right? So, so I think it's important here that we don't broad stroke everybody in China or everybody in America with the political group that's in charge or doing what they're doing. But, but I do think that forming those communities, what you just said, that network of goodwill speaks very, very well to forming a global community in, in the larger sense. And the good citizenship is, it's all based on relationship, really. Beautifully said. 
Yeah, I, uh, I agree with that. And uh, one of the things that I noticed about you when I first met you, Greg, and how you have this just amazing love for running. And <laughs> so when you came back to the States, you started, I know you've always been running, but you started going off in a different direction. And can you tell us a little bit about some of these uh, records you've been trying to break? And I'd like to hear more about the seven continent run that you did. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, I was a CEO for a number of years in China. It's stressful. Uh, and, and what I've realized as a youth mentor, that job is stressful. Every job is stressful. Every one of us is dealing with pressure, is dealing with stresses, is dealing with setbacks. And too often we think, oh, my life is stressful, but everyone else must have it under control. My view actually now is, no, not really. Every one of us deals with this. And sure, there are ups and downs. There are peaks and valleys. Every one of us can be there for each other. And uh, that's one thing that I've uh, you know, come, come to believe in my time. Uh, every one of us needs outlets to do it healthfully. I used to drink you know, after work and then actually even before work because I, I had a problem. And that's how I would try to cope as my outlet. Running is the healthy outlet uh, for me. And what I've learned is that when we show up, and especially when we show up day after day after day, we become the best version of ourselves, no matter what we're doing. And for me, it is running. Today marks uh, 1,208 consecutive days of running. Uh, I haven't missed a day since March 26th, 2020. And in that, I've gotten a lot faster, actually. Just when you train every day, you get faster. Um, and, and that's true no matter what you're up to. In those 1,208 days, I've, uh, I've had the chance to tow the start line of a number of great races and some really fun adventures, of course. And I've actually, I've gone out to set a number of, uh, a number of records. My, my favorite record is becoming the first person to ever run from Puget Sound. So sea level all the way to the top of Mount Rainier. That's 86 miles and 14,410 feet of climbing. First Yahoo to, I think to ever try that and, and uh, certainly to do it, and, I th and still the only uh, Yahoo with a thick enough skull to think that's a good idea. But that's the beauty. W when we go out for it and we work at it, we can do things that are absolutely you know, mind-boggling. Because when I started running as a high schooler, I couldn't run a mile. I was super at, you know, out of breath, just getting down to the mailbox. And now it's like, yeah, I can go run 86 miles. And it's, it's what I do. And that's the metaphor. Every one of us it's capable of so much more than we realize. We got to get started. We got to work at it. We got to surround ourselves with great people. And that's how we become the best version of ourselves. That's how we become the best citizen we can be as well. Hello, friends. Thanks for listening. A Squared Lamp Groups powers this podcast. Their memberships are tax-deductible donations that directly support their work developing people and organizations. But just for you, they're offering podcast listeners a special 40% off coupon code to join. Your benefits as a member include additional resources, perks, and access that you can use all year, including an additional 30 minutes of bonus podcast content for every episode. Simply use the code 4LISTENERS at checkout. That's the number 4, all caps, LISTENERS at checkout. They also are giving our listeners free gifts to use now. Go to their website, asquaredlamps.org forward slash podcast, and download your free My Success Course of Action worksheet. There is no cost, registration, or sales pitch involved. Just click it and save. Use it to work on something significant to you this month, maybe even something that sparks interest from today's podcast. 
Then click to join our free but private Stop Digging podcast LinkedIn group, where the conversation continues between you, the hosts, and our guests. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And now, back to the program. So let me ask you this, because in managing your stress when you're running, what happens when, like, one day you don't run? What is that internal dialogue? Do you get down on yourself? Do you're like, oh, I didn't show up today. I'm not my best. Are you going <laughs> down that route or are you also managing that to keep going? Yeah, well, Susan, so I'll give you an example from last night. I, uh, I intended to run in the morning and instead I don't. And then it's a busy day. So now it's afternoon and now it's evening and now like the sun is setting and a bunch of you know thought cycles during the day where, oh, I should have run already. Uh, there's something magic that happens when we actually just lace up our shoes and get after it. And so I work with a lot of young people that deal with kind of like overthinking something or they deal with anxiety or they're a little gun shy about getting going. And my advice is always take the leap. You've got to start before you're ready. And that's true of whether it's training and getting after it, you know, on a daily run or going out for that big goal that you've been really excited about, but also really nervous about the first step is the hardest. There's magic and momentum. We got to get started to make that momentum possible. Well, I love that. Um, there's something else because I've had the honor of being around you for lots of different events. And uh, earlier this year, you were at a school event and you said something that I think about every day. And it's, you, you said that we can all do hard things. And I just love that sentiment because it's a great motto to have because it can be like a rallying cry for us, but also that incentive that we need to go out every day keep doing the things we do. Like, honestly, even before we did this conversation, I was a bit nervous about it. <laughs> I always am. But, um, but I, I do it anyway, um, because I know there's something good that's going to come out of it. Right. And with this sentiment, last year, you did this amazing run across the United States. And I was just so in awe of that. And so many other people, but like you did this amazing run and you touched a lot of people. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like how, how you how it got started and everything? Yeah. So I, today's, a, it's today's July 17th, 2023, exactly one year ago. Oh I my was, gosh. I was exactly <laughs> one year ago, had, had reached the Pacific ocean. And uh, yeah, today's a special day. I was, I was just rewatching the video of the final mile that my buddy shot. And uh, having hundreds of folks in Ocean Shores, Washington, come out for high fives, for hugs, to try to hand me chocolate, and uh, it uh, it was yeah, it, my, it is the kind of so you know that's my dream. Just hundreds of people coming out and handing me chocolate, you know, just <laughs> continue. <laughs> so good, no, seriously, it uh, I've yeah, so so good, man, and delicious chocolate as well. I gotta say, it, it's overwhelming when you. Uh, you start chasing your dream that's been in your mind for a long time. And it's overwhelming when you're making it happen. And then you realize, wow, like, because we got started and we are making this happen, all of these folks feel encouraged and inspired to come out and to uh, be part of this and to be then the best version of them and to be there for their family, their friends and their own journey. And that, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful. And because for me, I didn't choose this work. This work chose me. I, I, I never wanted to admit I was an alcoholic. I never wanted to admit I had depression or anxiety. I wanted that to be someone else's thing. But 
it's my thing. And, and I realized when I'm open and honest with young people about stuff I've dealt with, we reach just a completely different level in our relationship. And all of a sudden, this young young guy in front of me who's been struggling to open up is letting me know what's really on his mind, what's in his heart. And all of a sudden, we're in just such a deeper, better, stronger place. And he's living out the best version of himself and his path. And this run across America is really a continuation of all of that. It's me and my own self-discovery, me and my own exploration and journey. And it's really trying to pay it forward for the you know 12-year-old, the 14, the 16-year-old version of me that really struggles with my own path. And it's for those 12 and 14 and 16-year-olds today that are struggling. And if my path can be an inspiration and an encouragement for somebody, that makes me real, real happy. And it also gives me fuel and purpose for the next steps in my own journey too. Well, I, I think that speaks to embodied leadership. I mean, uh, we love having you on because you're a leader in the idea of good citizenship, but you embody it. And I think that is probably the most powerful leadership because you're walking the talk and you're sharing the walk with others. And it gives people the freedom to share their struggles as well. And I know, Nancy, you've, you're also a similar type of leader in that you kind of are the lightning rod for all things moving forward. Yeah, I, I think the thing that I really appreciate about your run, Greg, was that, you know, you were able to be, you're such a humble and vulnerable person, being able to be vulnerable. And I really appreciate that because that drop, people, it drops their, they're able to drop their guard that armor they've been carrying around. And I know that when you were doing the run, it was kind of the start, the kickoff for your latest foundation that you started. And um, so tell us a little bit about that. And can you share like a story or two of people you met along the way? Yeah, hundred percent. So I, uh, p- part of my aim is I love running. And even if I could never tell anyone about it or run with anyone else, I would still do it because I, I love running. I've also realized that I love running a lot. And because I love it to the degree I do, I do really, you know, big, crazy projects with it. Um, and sometimes that that's a good way to do fundraising and do fundraising to make stuff happen. And so that was the big idea here is I'd always wanted to run across America. And I realized, hey, look, it would be a total miss if, if there weren't a, a broader purpose behind this, including my own self-work and self-discovery and sharing that as, as we go about it. And in short order, as we kicked off the run, it was so apparent to me why this mission matters. And I remember as we're crossing the Appalachians, it's the first Starbucks we've seen in, you know, 100 plus miles. Um, and there's a young man and he wants to hear what we're up to because it's clear I've been running. I'm like soaking wet. We just ran through a rainstorm. And I mentioned we're doing this for youth mental health. And all of a sudden, this young man's tone and tenor changes and he has tears running down his cheeks as he comes in for a hug. And this young man has just lost his beloved cousin to suicide. And the number of times I heard about just really, really tough stuff someone's going through, either in their own journey, a close family or friend, it's a reminder that this touches every single one of us. Many of us had challenges growing up because growing up is hard. It's never been harder with social media, with the pandemic and the ramifications. We've got to be there for each other. And in all stripes and all shapes, people are dealing with this. And it was true in the big cities that we went through, New York and Philadelphia and Chicago and Pittsburgh. It was true in the small towns. It was true in the reservations. And the single most inspiring conversation I've ever had in my life 
was with a man named Cedric Fighting Bear on the Cheyenne Reservation in Montana. And Cedric uh, is a guy that has every reason to be resentful about the lot he's been given. He's one of nine, like nine kids. He's orphaned as a, uh, as a child. He's beaten almost daily by a drunk uncle. He loses every single sibling to tragedy, to addiction. Uh, he's the last one left. And as a 50-year-old man on the Cheyenne Reservation, Cedric is there. Cedric is there as a youth mentor, lifting up the next generation, giving them reasons for hope, giving them reasons for optimism. And as I ran through on the run across America, I meet this wonderful guy, pure, wonderful coincidence. Uh, I don't really believe in coincidence, though. We were put together uh, for a reason because Cedric told me, he reminded me that runners have a special place in Cheyenne tradition. They're messengers. Their job is to carry a message and to bring the seven confederations back together. And he, he uh, told me, look, you are carrying a message. So take this hawk's feather, take, the, take this sweet grass, and take this cedar shingle, carry it with you to the Pacific, because you're carrying a message about our young people and how they stay safe, how they stay healthy. Go safely, go, go speedily, go. And just such a special moment as uh, I get to meet Cedric Fighting Bear, and he's there to encourage me with a big hug, and with these wonderful totems of safe passage, tell me to continue west. And to this day, a year later, in my truck, I've still got the hawk's feather. I've still got the braided sweetgrass. I've still got the cedar shingle because I want to remember this special man. And his big advice to me was, look, ki getting kids moving with a purpose will change their life. And that's why Cedric is still alive. He is still alive. He is still with us when so many others in his situation are not because he found running as a young guy and it, with an after-school running club, he was able to, you know, find a healthy outlet despite his own depression, his own substance abuse, his own brushes with the law. He's with us today as a force for good on the Cheyenne Reservation and he has an influenced our model with Run Far Foundation. We're launching a pilot running club called Nisqually Run Far Club um, on the Nisqually Reservation near Kitsap Peninsula here where we get young people running for a purpose, to get moving, to be happy, to be healthy, to learn about resilience and learn about you know, compassion and being there for each other, all while getting moving and getting stronger uh, mentally, physically, spiritually, and as a capstone, all of that together for salmon recovery. Because the data says if you have a purpose bigger than yourself, you're way less likely to fall into the pit of mental illness or fall into the pit of addiction you're way more likely to be a force for good in your own community, to lift others up with good mental health. And that's what our model is all about, all inspired by my friend, Cedric Fighting Bear. I, I love that story of connection. But that speaks to me. I didn't think there could be anything somebody handed me other than chocolate that would be better. <laughs> but I think if I got, you know, the three things that you said, I mean, that just speaks, speaks volumes to me. But uh, the foundation that you started and this running thing, I, what I love about it, um, apart from the neuroscience behind exercise and how that affects your brain mentally, is that we are less likely to think dark thoughts when we are connected with other people. Mm. And so sometimes it's safe to connect with someone if it's through an activity because it doesn't seem all encompassing. It's not so complex that it becomes something else that we have to manage. And, and so to have a 
a relationship that's focused around a particular activity has a boundary to it and it allows deeper connection in ways that you normally wouldn't. So I really love all of that. And uh, when I don't want to run, <laughs> it's going to probably be your voice in my head, not mine, that gets me <laughs> lacing up my sneakers. So um, hopefully that's true for all of our listeners. And you can also listen to uh, Greg's voice to get you motivated. Well, I, I'm so happy that we're able to talk to you on the one-year anniversary of your great run across America because that your work last summer inspired so many people. I know everyone, you know, from uh, Bainbridge Island, Seattle, Kitsap County, all you know, all across Washington, were just had their eyes on you, and I was tracking you on the Instagram <laughs> messages, and and it was so great because you inspired a lot of people to get out there. And I know some, you know, you had that big group, there was a big group that rallied and showed up in Seattle and (laughs) just kind of this, um, you brought community together and it was so nice to see. Can I ask a question? Could I ask a question? Nancy, if you don't mind. So, you know, running is such a solitary thing. Now you, you talked about crowds meeting you at certain places and cheering you on, but how alone are you (laughs) when you're running? I mean, are you like connected to anybody is somebody in your ear saying you can do it or i mean like what's what's your world like when you're running yeah so during the run across america there there were moments where yeah you're in the middle of a cornfield and the closest person is on a jet you know 15 miles over 30,000 feet in the sky um so yeah there are a lot of solitary moments there but the moments of connection are what really feed you and so um I remember as I was coming out of the Rockies, this was, uh, what, July, like June 30th, almost July 1st, I'm in uh, St. Ignatius, Montana, and I look up and it's my friend Nancy, um, who's there, and she wants to run a mile with me, and I get to meet her two sons, I get to meet her husband, and it's a wonderful, like, just spark, and the, the amazing part about when you do something, when you follow your muse, whatever it is, people notice. And you, you bring people in, they join your journey, they want to support you on your journey because they can tell it means a lot to you. And before long, you have these wonderful adventures together that would have never been possible. Like that mile with Nancy up at Elevation, which was a tough mile, but it was <laughs> super awesome where I get to hang out with my friend there. And those little sparks, man, they, they happen when you're, when you're embarking. And so running can be solitary, Susan, but actually my favorite runs Saturday, every Saturday morning, I do a community run on Bainbridge Island and it's all about mental health for getting people together, joining in to run a 5k as fast or as slow as you'd like, walk it, run it, walk it, crawl it, roll it, whatever. It's free. It's fun. And it's people as young as about four years old up to about 84 years old come out and it's awesome. And then Monday nights uh, at six o'clock, we meet at the middle school track and hundreds of us go run. And uh, for me, those group runs, way more fun, way more meaningful. And I got started myself doing those middle school track meets when I was in about third grade. And so uh, that's how I became a strong runner. And it's changed the course of my life. So I want to be there as one of the you know elder statesmen now for those third and fourth and fifth graders starting their journey too. So somebody like me who hates all kinds of exercise, I'm just going to put it out there. All right. I want to be motivated. I'm going to start running because your your voice is in my head now. How do I go get a running partner? Hey, so it <laughs> starts, um, the first thing, even before you have a partner, 
get a pair of shoes that is really comfortable. And so I, uh, I'll put in a quick bl- plug for Brooks. I wore three pairs of Brooks as I ran across the country. They are, they're hardy shoes. They're comfortable. They're super light and they keep your feet safe and healthy. Uh, and it, it's way less likely you'll get injured when you have a good pair of shoes that fit right. And then running is kind of fun. If you have a pair of shoes that feels really good, you look forward to running because it feels good and it's, it's nice. And you get endorphins and dopamine and serotonin going. When you are out with a smile on your face, it's going to be much, much more likely that you're able to rope a friend in to then go run with you. Uh, no matter where you're at, there's a runner not too far away. And uh, that's the fun part about running. It's you, With a pair of shoes, you can then go get after it. And then tell your friend, hey, I'm having a lot of fun with running. Would you be up to join me for a mile? And uh, a mile is a long way when you're getting started. But when you keep with it, before long, that one mile turns into two, turns into three. And you can keep going farther if you want or just enjoy that two, three, four mile jog. And those are some of the best miles every time anyway. I love that. Okay. So you're going to lessen the pain of exercise with connection and friendship and a big smile. So I like that. That's the formula. All right. Heck yeah. I call it social running. Ooh, (laughs) nice term. I like that. I'm a social runner. I, I like to be around people and it just makes it more fun. To, to be out there when, you know, you're with some friends, like Greg was saying. I love it. So, wow. So we have covered a lot of ground here and I can't believe we're almost at our limit. Uh, we uh, still haven't even talked about half of the, the community groups that he's formed. So I'm hoping that in the bonus section, we can get to that because yeah. there, there are, it varies. So I'd love to hear more about some of those. Yeah. And I, I kind of want to like end this, you kind of round this out with like, we started off, you know, Greg, you, you shared all these wonderful stories about how you got started in college um, with students. They could get money to go to college, and then your work doing very similar work in China, and you know, which leads to your foreign policy work. And and you know, you're this wonderful like, global citizen and helping people and bringing people together. And it's really what we need so much of right now. And what I want to know is like you, but you're starting to uh, do some more things locally. So you started to work with the Nisqually Reservation or tribe, I should say. But now you've just been appointed to the Kitsap County Mental Health Board. Or uh, can you explain that? Yeah, that, that's right. So I, I uh, I'm realizing more and more that if we want to change the world, we've got to start by changing ourselves. Number one, and then making a local impact. If we want to think global, we got to act local. And so, yeah, I'm, uh, I love making an impact where you can really see it and feel it. Uh, for a lot of years, I did software where you knew, hey, good stuff's happening, but it's on the other side of the world. It's really gratifying when you can help someone and then you run into them or their brother, their mom, their dad, who says, hey, like, you've been helping my family. Thank you. Like, that, that's just, it's an entirely different deal. And it feels, it just feels amazing. It shows, hey, I'm on the right track. I'm doing some good. And so, yeah, I've, I've been really plugged in working on mental health. And what I'm realizing is our policy has not caught up to what we now know about mental health. And so um, I actually, on July 4th, I announced uh, my candidacy, candidacy for the Washington State House of Representatives. I want to be a state representative because I want to mobilize for mental health. And it's for youth and for seniors. It's for nurses. It's for teachers. It's for first responders and veterans. We have all of these great people 
doing their best, but we're not yet having policy that really supports them. And it's everything from kids should learn how to take care the best care of their mental health in school. We got to connect seniors with more healthy connections in our communities. Nurses are working around the clock 365 without the right kind of care for them. Same goes for teachers. We're burning out all of these folks. And then we're asking first responders to be on call 24-7. They are dealing with with the opiate epidemic. They're dealing with the ramifications of COVID. And we're not supporting our first responders the way they support us. And you could say the same thing about veterans who've seen really tough stuff overseas, are coming back and don't have a clear sense of mission or purpose in a lot of cases. And we've cut the VA, we've cut naval hospitals over here. We got to be there for them too. So in my view, it takes a village. We've got to be there to invest in our people. And so I'm running to mobilize our mental health and we got to create good statewide policies to help these folks across the state. And I want to step up with the things that I've learned, the voices I've heard, amplify these voices and truly mobilize for mental health. I love what you said there though. Um, And I applaud you getting involved in the political process. I see so much focus on the global broad strokes of certain issues that people forget to focus on where they are. So for, for, and Nancy knows this for a short time, I was very active in environmental groups, but that was my biggest objection. Mm -hmm. You know, you're saving all these other things, but you can't even sweep your own porch. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like start, start small, smart, start where you are, Mm -hmm. uh, look around you pick up trash where you are, Mm -hmm. then help other people do it. Don't just yell at them that they're not. So I, I love the idea of just starting where you are and then growing it outward. And that speaks really to um, building a community from the ground up. Well, and what I love about your story, Greg, and all the work that you've done is that our podcast is called Stop Digging. And it's about when you are in a hole, stop digging. And, and you, really embody that spirit. Like when you found yourself in that spot, you stopped and you laced up your tennis shoes and you started running and you've been running ever since and encouraging people along the way, creating community, doing things, you know, thinking globally, acting locally, and just creating and providing tools for others to do the same for themselves. And that's really why, you know, after getting to know you and, and, and talking with you, that we just really felt you're just a, a great example of a, a good citizen. And we really, really appreciate what you've been doing. Hey, I so appreciate it. And it takes a village. Every one of us, there are ways for us to sweep our porch. There are ways to step up locally. And my encouragement to everyone listening, don't get jaded. Yes, there are big problems that we're not going to be able to solve today. But the only way we're going to make progress is if we roll up our sleeves, if we join together and get started. So make this the day you get started. What do you care about? Um, Step up as a volunteer. Start something if there's not something and be there for the people in your life. Whether it's your kiddo, it's an elder in your life, it's a stranger on the street corner. You being there for them is how we actually start making a difference. That's perfect. Thank you so much, Greg. Well, we're going to wrap up this episode and what we're going to do right now is uh, we're going to take a little break and then we'll start bonus section. Thank you for listening to the Stop Digging Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please like, subscribe, and share with a friend, and connect with us on our social media channels. This podcast is powered by asquaredlamps.org.